Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. I'm back with my friend Professor Matthew Capel because The Last of Us TV show is over, but there is still so much more we can dive into. Uh, I know Matthew is a big fan of both this game and the TV show, and so we're going to dive into all that. We're going to talk about uh, zombies versus vampires and why they hold a appeals for different generations. We're going to talk about post-apocalyptic as a genre and what this show and game does with that. We're going to talk about just the nature of video games and uh, TV shows and how translations like that work. All that and more after a commercial break we have no control over. Welcome back. My name is Matthew. I'm your host. I'm joined, as I said, by Mr. Professor, Mr. Professor, by, it should be your doctor. Can I, can I throw in a doctor in there? A doctor is probably better. Okay. Dr. Professor, Mr. Not Reverend, but I revere his thinking, Matthew Capel. Uh, Matthew, how are we doing today? <laughs> I'm fine. Don't, don't <laughs> revere my thinking, but fine. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. Well, I'm really glad you reached out to me about this show. Let me start by just kind of giving you the floor to kind of introduce us to you and this game because and this TV show. Again, I've not played the game. I, I watched it with my partner who has seen the show. And I always know when you reach out to me, you're like, hey, here's something I want to talk about that there's going to be a lot to dive into. So when you heard The Last of Us was coming out, when you saw it and you thought, hey, I want to talk to Matthew about it, what was it about this show and the game that really made you think, like, there, there's something to dive into here? Well, I think it's easily the best narrative story in a video game in the last three decades, by by a mm. long shot, by a, by a really really long shot, um, I, and also probably the most important. I mean, you go from you have died of cholera to this game, um, in terms of stories in video games that are significant to the way video games developed, and uh -huh. it it goes literally from, you know. Stuff from the 1970s to this. There's nothing in between right. that's really significant, comparatively speaking, to both. And it, it's just a fantastic... Uh, the things it does that the TV show could not do are really, really significant, I think. So... Yeah. I will say I've been enjoying what we're now playing through the second game. By we, I mean my spouse, who's a woman, is playing and I'm watching because we like, you know, reverting gender roles in this house. But... I, I do get what you mean. The, the the level of atmosphericness, that's not a word, but the the way in which like just watching the character explore the world around you and what you learn from that is it's a really interesting medium that you're right, the TV show captures some of, but the game just doesn't quite do it. Yeah. I'm sorry, the TV show doesn't quite do it the same way. Although the TV show I think was phenomenal. I found the TV show to be um just slightly different than the way you're representing it because I think they mm. did a really great job at looking the same like I don't mm. think and I don't think they ever had anybody in design um, set design and costume design who went I need to put my stamp on this I think they all went mm. we need to make this look like it looked in the game only real life um, and I think oh. they did a really really fantastic job 100% agree. I just meant in terms of in the game, 
you have much more control over like what parts of the world you want to look deeper into. You know, you can pause like and you can hit pause on the TV and read what's on the screen and things like that. But the ability to like pick up all the different books that are there and all the thing that that was just all I meant about the game. Yeah. Well, that's the basic difference between watching something and playing something, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Right. Um, Which is what makes video game narrative a whole different medium than. Right than film or television or even a novel. Well, I want to start there because I think it's really interesting the way you're talking about it is that this game is so revolutionary in terms of video game narrative because I I agree with you from the little I know. One of the counter arguments that I sometimes hear is that this is actually a poor example of what video games can do because the story is, for all intents and purposes, on rails. You know, you can't change. And by the way, huge spoiler warning. We're going to talk about all the things that are going to happen. But, you know, in other games, you get to make the decision about what would Joel do when he finds out that Ellie is going to be killed or, you know, what would Ellie do and and, and things like this. And there's numerous narrative paths. What's kind of your response to that idea of how this is the video game you really hold up so high when it is a single... you get to interact in the world, but you're basically a passenger on a track that someone else has built. There's there's two replies to that. One, um, this is a game that was originally done for the PlayStation 3. Mm-hmm. So it is an amazing game for the PS3, but um, it was the PS3. If they were going to have a big, expansive story and for a PlayStation 3 game... Um, it was going to be relatively re- relatively about the train tracks. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I'm fine with that. Um, the second game is, I don't know quite how many hours, but I'm going to say it's about 40, maybe 50 hours. This game, the first game, is 15 hours tops. It's a 15-hour right. game. It's a, small, it's a small game. It was a huge game for PlayStation 3 at the time, um, but it's a small game. Yeah. So... So from a technical perspective, that would be my first, I guess, reaction. But more importantly, here's the second thing, because one of the things you just said was having the choice to decide what to do when Joel finds out that Ellie's going to die is would be nice. Actually, that's the revolutionary moment in the entirety mm-hmm. of the narrative, because as a gamer, you want to do the right thing to win the game. And the right thing is something as a gamer that you spend the entire time doing it going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do yeah. this. I don't want to do this. But you can't not do it. And it drives home the point that violence is a thing that is overwhelming and difficult and terrible. Um, and instead of finishing that game feeling like a hero, you finish that game feeling like a horrible human being, which you right. basically have been the whole game, but now you really know it. Um, and yeah. I think that's the true revolution right there. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. I, I made a joke, and I, to be clear to be clear on this, I'm not saying that I think Joel is a villain 100%. But I think you, I, I got to that point where Joel had that turn, and I said to my partner, oh, so this entire show is, an, is a villain origin story. In terms of like, you know, think of the way like Batman or or the MCU more recently creates the villains of people who on the surface look like they're doing terrible things. And then you look at them deeper and look, you understand how from their perspective, 
they're 100 percent the hero they couldn't they couldn't do anything else and that I sometimes think Marvel kind of cheapens out a little bit in that they will give you a hero, they will give you a villain where actually you're like, no, wait, the villain's right. Oh, but the methods the villain is using are wrong. So therefore, we, we can't agree with them. Yeah, you, you totally have to and, agree with Killmonger. And then to make sure that, you know, he's a villain, he has to do something ridiculous and violent. Right. Right. Yeah. Same with Magneto and some of the stories and, and, yep. and things like that. And like, but just. Like, I could imagine you could tell this game from a different perspective and Joel would 100% be a villain. And yet, at, by the end of the game, uh, by the end of the show, at least, and my understanding is from the end of the game as well, I'm put in a perspective where I am troubled by Joel's choices and from a kind of objective, what's good for everyone standpoint, I find his choices problematic. I think what he does makes complete sense for him. And while I recognize that he has been the point of view character and Marlene has not, just from the little we know of Marlene, I feel the same way. That I think from what Marlene's perspective is doing, what she is doing is the only possible act and that she sees it as heroic, even though I am somewhat against, you know, and I'm in this place where I'm like, I disagree with both of you and watching you go to conflict is heartbreaking because the simple answer is always just ask Ellie. Let Ellie have some agency here. But of course, neither of them is capable of doing that. And it's both heartbreaking, but also like neither one feels like they're in any way out of character, if that makes sense. No, that makes total sense. I, I think we have to be really careful not to um, use the simple narrative definitions we use. I don't think there's a villain in this story. I don't think there's a hero yeah. in the story. I um and I, I think it's quite intentionally making sure that you can't go, Joel is a villain, because none of them are. Yeah. It's it's much yeah. more nuanced than than our normal pop culture narratives are. It's much more nuanced than, let's use the obvious example, than Star Wars is. And intentionally yeah. so. Right. And, and where well, the lack of nuance is sometimes the great strength of a thing, sometimes the nuance right. can be this great strength of the thing as well. Right. And, and I would argue that Star Wars now kind of runs the gamut and that in shows like Andor, it has really started. Like, to me, um, Luthen and Marlene would be best friends, you know, <laughs> Luthen perhaps even 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 a little more extreme. But like, you know, the, those same ideas. And I think because Luthen's a point of view character for a while, the audience cheers for him in a way that they're like, oh, no, of course, like. The number of reactions that I see online, they're like, of course Joel is right, and of course Marlene is wrong. And I think you're right. The whole point of the show is to say, this is the brokenness of the post-apocalyptic society where, yeah, the ideas of heroes and villains go totally out the window. Exactly. And and the idea that motives can be pure go out the window, mm-hmm. which I, I think is a slightly different thing than... Heroes and yep. villains. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's the old line a villain can never be a villain in their own mind. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're always, they always think that they're the hero. Yep. It's also the part where I find uh, Ellie's lack of agency in the whole thing the most frustrating because I think the implication, at least, that I get is that as hard as it would be, Ellie would probably choose to sacrifice herself in order oh, to no create question. a cure. 
And Joel knows that. Yep. And the tragedy is that Marlene doesn't. That Marlene doesn't think that they can do that. Marlene thinks they have to do it immediately. Joel knows that, and that's why he lies to her. And so, to me, it's, again, it's part of the thing of, like, there is a person who could be a fairly out-and-out hero in this story, but because of the nature of everyone else's feelings about her, she gets denied that choice. Yes, I think Marlene's decision is not an attempt to deny her the choice, though. I think Marlene knows what her choice would be and just doesn't want her to have to suffer through the choice. Mm. Right. Okay, that's an interesting way to put it. Um, and I, 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 I guess I would hope somebody would do that for me, frankly. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And, and as we talked about the last week when we, I did an episode on the show with, with Danielle or two weeks ago, probably, the way they're scheduled to come out, I think that's also the tragedy, is that Marlene Marlene thinks she can do it that way because she has no idea that Joel has bonded with Ellie the way he has. You know, and I think that's the, again, another tragic part of this, is that you think, why didn't she know? But of course, the last time she saw this dynamic, Joel was just referring to Ellie as cargo. So of course, for her, she she it doesn't occur to her that Joel's going to have this reaction. Mm-hmm. Let's let's separate the the show from the game again because uh, mm-hmm. the, the the way the game works, games have a different attitude towards point of view. I think in many cases, um, mm. and in, it, when if you were playing the game for the first time, and I played the game for the first time on the PS4, the remastered version, um, and I was pretty new to the PlayStation at the time, and um, I was pretty new to really thinking through games with strict um, following narrative conventions. Um, if you had asked me what a good game was at that moment in my life, I probably would have said Civilization or something like that. Right. Um, and so the game follows in 2013 standard ways. You get one character and you're playing that character and you never get this feeling that you're ever going to be anything other than Joel and you're going through everything and you're Joel. And then you think the game's almost over and it turns out it's not. And suddenly, completely bizarrely for the time period, you're Ellie for an entire chapter. Right. When Joel gets hurt. When Joel gets hurt and and Ellie has to take over and Ellie has the most just horrible experience you can possibly imagine having. Um, And I watched in prep for this, I watched the little like snippets they do after the episodes on HBO Uh Um, and, and Neil Druckmann, who wrote the original one and is one of the creators of the series, um, said really, I think a really beautiful way of putting it he said when you watch people play the game at that moment they go oh my god i'm ellie um and it's just like revelatory to them um that that suddenly you are a character that had no agency the whole time um yeah and that the fact that we're sitting here now in 2023 going i wish ellie had more agency the fact that ellie the little kid the sidekick in a game a decade ago suddenly had agency was itself yeah. uh, a, um, an epiphany for players. Oh, they say that being so interesting because they do foreshadow it beautifully. And there's a moment in the show that, I, that I, I believe something like this happens in the game, but I'm not sure if it's so on the nose, where Joel thinks that he shouldn't be the one to take Ellie to go to the university to find the fireflies. And so he thinks Tommy should go instead. 
And then when he does say, okay, I, I can go, but he still says, Ellie, you should have the choice. You know, because he wants Ellie to choose between him and Tommy. And, you know, on some level, as Danielle pointed out uh, last week, he knows she's going to choose him. This is about helping to absolve his guilt. But still, it's him specifically giving her the agency there. And I think mm-hmm. that's why, to me, if there is a villainous moment, like, I I think that for the overall betterment of the world, Ellie's... Ellie, you know, Ellie either making that sacrifice or that sacrifice being made for her, which is murder, let's be clear. But that is better for the over. If it does, you know, this is a trolley problem, so we shouldn't question the the, the trolley. But if the, if, the, if the idea is that this cures the disease, this cures the fungus and we can get back to normal or maybe a better version of normal, I think morally that's something I can support. As horrible as it is to do that to Ellie, but... It's a, but I also can understand why Joel does that. It's when he lies to her, though, especially, is to me where I feel like not that that's his villain turn, because, again, you're right, that's not a villain at all. But that's when, to me, it becomes about this isn't about his love for her and wanting her to have the best for her. This is about him wanting to keep her in his life, which yeah, it's a very it, selfish decision. Yeah. It's the, you know, Martin Buber, I think. We've talked yep. about that before. But that's the moment when instead of it being an I-thou relationship, it's an I-it relationship in this really heartbreaking way. That is a bringing, – bringing Buber into that is a really insightful way to do it. That's, that's true. Um, it's, it's not – Ellie goes from being cargo to still being cargo, just a different kind of cargo. Right. And just for those of you who are not um, very well known in uh, 19th century Jewish German philosophy, um, <laughs> Martin Buber's whole idea was that the, that an I-it relationship is where you only see a person in terms of the value that they bring into your life. And so it could be like, oh, hey, there's a person who works behind the, sto- the, the, the desk at the store I go to. All I care about is do they give me my change on time? Do they have the product I want? Are they polite to me? And once I go out the door, they cease to exist in my mind versus the, okay, can I at least recognize that they are a fully formed person? And so, yes, I'm a little frustrated, but I'm going to try and have some understanding of what they're going for. To put it in modern terms, and this is actually kind of an an essay I'd love to write, I I think you could say Martin Buber was describing, you know, the I-it relationship is I'm a PC and everyone else is an NPC. The I-thou relationship is I am a PC and everyone else is a PC as well. Have I just broken your brain by connecting video games and RPGs to... to yeah, my, to br- my, my brain just exploded. So, yeah. It, oh God, I'm going to have to clean up now. That, 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 <laughs> that is a really, really beautiful metaphor, Matthew. I love that. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, let me interrupt you unless there's anything more you want to go... Oh, well, we could talk about Boober for like an hour, but I don't think people would continue to listen. So. I think it's probably true. It's probably true. Well, and that, and that is a, that that's a direction that we have seen a lot of these things go. And so, I'm going to ask you to be the omnipresent ethicist for just a moment, and then we're going to go into some of the other kind of a little bit more tertiary questions that revolve around this whole thing, but I think haven't really been explored. That I, I think you're the perfect person to dive into. But so first. Omnipresent, you know, ethicist. This person has the ability. The thing that is in this person will cure 
the 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 fungal zombie disease it will save humanity but to do it they must die and assume that they ha- they are unable to make this choice is it ethical to kill them good god sir um <laughs> okay i've got a, a- I'm going to be long and involved because I don't want to come up with an actual answer because then you'll hold me to it. But one, um, it's far more specific in the game that this process will save humanity. I think the TV show um, makes it seem like it's probable, but not necessarily a 100% sure thing. Yeah. It feels very rushed in the TV show in a like, why don't we study this more? Yes. And um, in that sense... Joel is making a morally correct decision, um, yeah. which could very well be like, hey, we will stay here and let you study this as long as you need to to figure out a way to do it without killing her. Um, and as somebody who has biological anthropology in my background, I'm like, man, it's not that hard to take a brain sample. It really just isn't. Um, so if you think you need to, like, you know, toss the brain in a blender, I think you're being a little short sighted. Um, but that said, the other argument that I I can't help but bring up is I think the pan- our our own pandemic has taught us one thing, which is the world might be better off without us. Mm. Um, I remember at the time I was living in Brooklyn. I remember about a year into the pandemic, there were whales on the Hudson River, man, um, and yeah. and that was the first time that had happened in a century. Uh, so, you know, I don't think it's a better thing for the world if we save humanity, necessarily. I think it's just a better thing for humanity. Right. And and that makes the morality of the decision slightly different to me. Nonetheless, yeah. yes, um, if it's... Here's the way I'm going to put it. If killing me saved the world, kill me. If I have to kill somebody to save the world, I don't think I can do it. Yeah. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's where... In a completely different part of discussions, the rise of AI, I think, is bringing back a lot of questions. And the rise of AI as ethicists raises a lot of questions about, you know, is this a path to utilitarianism? Because I think that I, I lean towards the, you know, to me, if Ellie wants to make that decision, if she's okay with that decision, it should happen. And again, you know, the, the point of a trolley problem is to answer the problem, not to argue about like, oh, but what if we change the tracks of the trolley or that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, and to your thing, I think my, my, the first response is, I don't know if cordyceps is better for the planet either than humanity. I think you could see humanity is another fungus upon the planet. Um, but but I, but I think, yeah, that, that, that's, I, I definitely get where you're coming from. And I think to me more than anything, I shouldn't... <laughs> I don't want to a- ask you a question and then say, oh, wait, now that you've answered the question, I'm going to say the whole question is dumb. <laughs> I, I think I do come down with you on it in the same place. But I think that's the whole point of the game and the show is also showing like this idea that we can ever have an objective, ethical, well, what is the right choice? It's never. Because as you, like, I think the whole point is just the idea that humanity should be saved is fundamentally a subjective ethical perspective. Mm-hmm. The idea that Ellie's life should have value is one that I, I hope most people believe. But yeah, to me, I think that, that, that 
yeah, it, it's, that's why I love this game so much. It's why I love this show so much because it it takes all of the kind of ideas that I think we want to hold on to about, you know, you have seen Andor, right? Yes. Uh, okay, I, I don't want to spoil that at all, but like, you know, in Andor, we see people make decisions that in a vacuum, I think, are pretty reprehensible mm-hmm. and are... People who are portrayed as heroic or see themselves as heroic are very quick to sacrifice the lives of large numbers of other people. And the story is told in a way where I don't know if we ever get a farm boy in a ship that can destroy the Death Star if those decisions weren't made the way they were, Uh you know, and that's the... I don't want to use. I don't want to say that the game proves that the podcast about exploring ethical questions is, irre- is irrelevant because that's certainly not where I want to go. But I think that, that it it brings into question this this whole idea of can we ask these ethical questions in the abstract? I think the game brings into question whether or not we can really all think that the logical positions of Spock are actually all that useful. Hmm. That's a good way to put it. Um, Because you can be a complete utilitarian as long as you simplify everything to the point that humanity no longer is a thing that you're really factoring in. Right. Right. Um, Otherwise, utilitarianism is just it fails because it's overly simplistic every single time. And yes, the greater good for the greater number gives you the obvious answer here. Unless you count in that number everything from, you know, giraffes and zebras um, to people. Right. Right. Yeah. As we saw, giraffes and monkeys that used to be, you know, encaged and ex- experimented on, they're flourishing right now. Yes. And my so. favorite line in any video game and one of my favorite lines in all of literature right now is first time seeing a monkey. I just it gets me every time because it is mm-hmm. such a silly but nonetheless profound moment. Yeah. Remember, this is not the world that I knew. This is your world, and this is your first time seeing a monkey. Yep, my first time seeing a monkey is an insane thing. If nothing else, it it is to me a wonderful reminder of something that I I wish we had learned during the pandemic, but that I think it's looking like we failed to learn, (laughs) which is the... Is the desire for status quo ante, you know, is the desire to bring everything back to the way it was before. Because, you know, and and in the pandemic, I think there's a lot of there was a lot of discussion about like, hey, look at what we're learning about community building and about community support. And that maybe we don't have to have these completely commercialized, uh, you know, galactic corporate worlds that we live in pretty much going right back to that and i think you know if someone towards the end of uh the last of us saga were to start saying hey wait a minute maybe the destruction of local foodways and small businesses and local you know gastro economies in favor of the company where if a little bit of this you know fungus gets into their flour it's going to go all over the world because that's the global economy of food we live in you know, maybe we shouldn't rebuild that exactly as it is. Exactly. Um, as we're on a we're on your podcast, and your podcast is called Superhero Ethics, and I, I, the thing I always think of, and the thing that almost kept me from listening to it the very first time, uh-huh. um, um, is that all superhero na- narratives are essentially conservative. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's my problem with them. The villains always want change, and the superheroes always want to keep the status quo. And right. and that is not a hero. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I, I want to come up with examples that go the other way, but I think the fundamental idea of that, I think you are correct. And I think there is something fairly cons- – if nothing else, because the superhero story so often is the one rugged individual against the broken system. Like the um, – what do the Germans call it? The Superman? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that sorry. idea has never gotten us in any problematic directions no. or anything. No, no, although, no. Although they, if we although just there, get, I do th- go ahead. I do think I, I was going to say I do think it's very important though that the literal Superman was created by Jews who were very specifically looking to Jewish mythology mm-hmm. as a way to combat Nazism and and Nietzscheism yeah. and stuff like that. But oh, without that, question, that's a whole yes. other podcast for us. Which is a podcast we should really do, by the way. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so let me draw us to another one of those kind of uh, larger questions, or at least a different direction question, which is, the, the first one I want to ask is, why is it you think that we love these dystopian stories so much of the whole world has ended, what happens? And you as a student of anthropology, I know you've studied kind of like myths and stories throughout time. Um, my understanding is that like, you don't have like the, the the post-apocalyptic dystopian story is it's not a creation of the last thirty years. We certainly have them in the nineteenth, maybe even the eighteenth centuries, but that is a it, it is a post not postmodernism, but it is a like post-industrial revolution modernism kind of idea, uh, at least in the scale it's in in literature and art and media and things like that. Is that is that accurate? Like, or forget if I'm right or wrong. I just want to hear what are your thoughts on like. Why this story comes from comes about now and and it, where it's been in history? Just shut up! I'll shut up. Just, <laughs> tell me about the stories. Well, you know the apocalypse. Uh, this is going to be a horrible thing to say to um, somebody with a theology degree, but um, the apocalypse um, in in the last two hundred years is a very American thing. Mm. Uh, by which I mean, if you want to talk about the end of the world. You, you started in like the 1830s in upstate New York with people going, I've got the date and time. Everybody give away your, all of your possessions and meet me on this hill. And people do. Right. Right. Um, and upstate New York from 1820 to 1850 was like a whole bunch of new religions forming constantly. Uh, yep. and, and, and to people who don't know about it, it always seems weird. Like you go upstate New York. Um, but. That's where the Latter-day Saints come from, and that's where your silverware comes from, and it's really important, both of them. Mm -hmm. Um, That was a reference to Oneida, the Oneida people, um, who ended up needing money, so they made silverware instead of being a cult. Um, But the American version of— To be very clear, I just want to say we're not talking about the Oneida First Peoples uh, nation. We're talking about a group of people that met in a city that was named after them, etc. Yes. Good, Just good correction. That. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, so the the apocalypse is super American to me, um, and um, mm-hmm. I don't. I, I, the problem with its Americanness, the only way I can talk about it is to talk about the Holocaust. So let me talk about the Holocaust for a minute. There's this notion in people who study the Holocaust that there's this thing called the Americanization of the Holocaust in stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 Schindler's List is the perfect example of the Americanization of the Holocaust. It is 
a story about the Holocaust in which the two main characters are a German Nazi and a German Catholic. You virtually meet none of the Jews, and at the end, a good portion of them survive. The end. Now you feel like you know the Holocaust, which is the exact right. opposite of the Holocaust, which is senseless death over and over again, and it's a shitty story. But the Americanization of it needs heroes, and it needs people who survive. Mm. Um, and the apocalypse is in American in American stories is very much the same way. Um, as much as we thought um, over and over again um, in the 19th century, especially, but well into the 20th, that we were um, building a city upon a hill, to, to use a term that I'm sure people are familiar with. Um, that city on the hill was supposed to be special because people could see us from all over the world and we would be the example. Right. And when we start talking about the Holocaust, people all over the world are going to see us and we're going to be the example of how to survive the Holocaust. The Holocaust always happens in America. Um, when the end of the world happens, everybody in all of these stories, people look to the Americans to figure out what to do. There's a moment in... Um, Independence Day, the 1994 Independence Day, where the, there's Brits in um, probably Israel who finally get the Morris Code and one of them turns to the other one and goes, the Americans have finally started doing something. Like, now we can defeat the aliens. Um, I, and the, I and love the, the book World War Z, which is one probably my personal favorite, you know, idea of a zombie war. Um, it, it was a terrible movie because it does not work as a movie. It's a wonderful book. But in that book, again, it's when the Americans step forward and have the plan that the whole world has to be rallied forward. Mm -hmm. I have not read World War Z. I've owned the co a copy for a long time now. Mm -hmm. I still haven't read it. But, yeah, when we talk about the apocalypse in popular culture, we mostly are talking about Americans' reaction to the apocalypse. Um, the book I'm working on right now is on the Horizon Zero Dawn games, which is made by a European company, but completely set in the western part of the United States. The apocalypse mm -hmm. happened a thousand years ago, and to see how we're going to fight against the apocalypse, it still has to be in the United States. And part of, partially that's a marketing issue, but partially it's because that's where you solve problems. Go west, young man. Yeah. Do you think part of it, because the first thing that occurs to me is that fundamentally the, the dystopian stories that we're used to are about loss. They're about the idea that we had lived in some degree of safety and security, that, you know, we were no longer worried about the wolf. We were no longer worried about starvation. Well, we being the middle class that consumes these things forgetting that horrible poverty exists, but that as a society, we were now kind of more focused on luxury and and improving society because the like the days of, you know, can we make a fire so that we don't freeze to death are gone. And that is a state of being that not just the United States, but certainly the United States is sort of most profoundified, but that an awful lot of the world hadn't gotten to. Uh, and beyond the caveman state, but certainly that, like, the level let – me, let me see if I can restate this. Kind of what I'm getting at is that, like, to, 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 to have a whole genre dedicated to the idea of losing your fundamental security, you have to live in a state of fundamental security that I think a lot of the world has never experienced the way it, the United States has, which is part of why 9-11 is so terrifying to the United States and, and 
that's a whole other question. But do, is that a fair statement about why dystopians tend dystopianism tends to be very much an American and Western kind of idea? Yes, I think it is. Let's be more generic about the zombie genre for a second. Um, mm -hmm. 1968, George Romero, right? Night of the Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead, um, for those of you who have not seen it, is a movie about race relations in America. Um, mm -hmm. That is exclusively what it's about. That was the intent of it. It is about... It was about racism at a time, and it was made at a time in which between 64 and 68, there were a lot of race riots in this country. Right. Um, one of the sequels to that film, again, George Romero, an independent filmmaker making horror movies, um, he needed to uh, save money, so he needed to film in a very enclosed space, make a bottle show, and it uh, is exclusively set in a mall. Um Mm -hmm. And that show, that movie is exclusively about consumerism. Um, and the, the, the fact that one of the films by the same guy is about race relations and another one is about, you know, consumerism, and both of them are great zombie films, um, tells you how pliable the zombie narrative is for things like this, I think. Right. Um, and so, yes, go. And I want to get into zombies as a genre, but I want to just stay just on the dystopian thing for one more moment. Although I definitely see the connection you're making. And you commented on the theology degree, so I do want to get a little bit theology, theological about this here. And, and tell me if this is, this is correct as you understand it from an anthropology perspective. I think growing up in United States, Europe, other cultures where the Abrahamic religions are the dominant systems of faith and thus have really shaped a lot of our thought. Abrahamic being Judaism, Christianity, Islam, that's also a much more accurate term than Judeo-Christian because it, it otherizes Islam and that's a whole other thing. But the point is, and forgive me for getting my theology geek hat on here, those religions are all eschatological, by which I mean they have an understanding that time has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Whereas in a lot of the rest of the world, the view of time is sick, is circular, you know, that there are these different ages and that they go in a cycle. And, and so my understanding from that has always been that the idea of an apocalypse as a everything has ended and we don't know if we're ever going to rebuild doesn't really make sense outside of an Abrahamic framework because there might be an apocalyptic event, but often that's just one more part of the cycle. And so it's not the dystopian, oh my God, what do we do kind of a moment. Is, is that, I'm painting in huge generalizing terms about religion and uh, stories, but is that somewhat accurate? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I've taught a lot of history and a lot of anthropology, and I think I would teach the, these two things in, in those two classes differently. Um, it wasn't until after I um, already had my doctorate that I had to teach a uh, Western Civ class. Um, mm which I can't help but put um, scare quotes around, but Western Civ. And I couldn't figure out how to teach it for a really long time. And then it occurred to me that the way to teach it was the Greeks believe in cyclical history and you're an American and you believe in progress. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, um, and you can't have an apocalypse unless you believe in progress. Right. You can't have the, the apocalypse end of the... Is the, is, the is the reversion of the progress. Yes. Um, and... You know, you talk about 
Greek cycles of history, and everybody goes, yeah, that makes sense, um, when they're like 20-year-old students. And you go, but you, <laughs> you are so typically American in what you believe, and so am I, because as a, a, a person with a um, disease that requires medicine every single day, um, I, have, I have to believe in progress, because without progress, I'm dead. Right. And um, so progress seems like a perfectly valid way to look at it. But with progress, you can see how easily the progress can be inverted. And that's how you get an apocalypse. And, yeah, I think you're exactly right that if um, they don't make apocalyptic movies um, in Bollywood. Right. um, They don't or Hong Kong. They don't have to. The idea is so... I'm going to use the term Western, but it is so Western, by which I mean what you say, the Abrahamic religions, um, that it's kind of ridiculous. Right. Okay. I got to get my theology geek on. I've justified the tens of thousands of dollars I paid for my degree. Let's now get to where you kind of wanted to start, because soon after the show started, you sent me an email saying we need to do something about zombies and vampires and the generational stuff and stuff like that. So let's talk about zombies. Okay. Um, Give, give me your TED Talk on the zombie genre. Well, I started that, I guess, with the George Romero stuff, right? But um, mm-hmm. um, as we started recording this podcast, you were like, are you ready? And I was looking around for a pen because you said something that I wanted to jot down, but I couldn't find a pen in my new office. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's um, – let's start not just zombies, but with the comparison of zombies and vampires because – Zombies are always an apocalypse, but vampire stories aren't. And there are two most dominant, um, let's call them genre unto themselves narratives that we have about monsters now. Um, There are so many vampire stories and there are so many zombie stories. Um, But you can have vampires and not have it be the end of the world. Right. Right. Generally, the vampires are actually propping up the world. And Mm -hmm. it's a very dark... You know, for those who played Vampire the Masquerade, which I think was a very formative part of the the Gen X vampire mythos for a lot of us, certainly, and it's very drawn from Interview of the Vampire kind of things. Yeah, it's the idea of the world. There's a, there is corruption. There are people in power behind the scenes, and that's where all the vampires are. So, let's continue that comparison. Um, Generally speaking, in American circles, zombies are fear of the masses and vampires are fear of the elites. Mm-hmm. In short, zombies are the fear of everything from urban unrest to, um, well, to democracy. If everybody is evil, the world equal. I'm sorry. If everyone is equal, the world is horrible. Um, right. right? Um, so zombies are the ultimate attack on, I would say, the Democratic Party. Um, Mm. Whereas vampires are about elite snobs who are controlling everything behind the scenes on Wall Street and voting for Republicans. Um, And and vampires are very much the fear of the stereotype of Republican under, underpinnings of the Republican Party until recently, until the Republican Party went crazy. Um, <laughs> but the, the Republican Party used to not be crazy, and it used to be a very interesting party. Um, right. And, um, and 
they thought elites were a good thing and vampires are a kind of an elite that you could romanticize in the same way that you could like who is john galt you could ask you know who is count dracula um because they were both stories about elites whereas zombies zombies are never stories about the elites zombie most of the heroes in zombie narratives are at best working class and they're fighting against those who would be below them on that class structure mm -hmm. um, there are no elites yeah, it's it's such an interesting way to frame it because I would have always thought, and and here I know one of the one of the questions that always comes up is, why have we seen a shift? Because there've always been zombie stories, there've always been vampire stories, at least going back to you know Frankenstein and Dracula, and then the myths that preceded those. But like in my generate, I'm Gen X. I, I think you and I are kind of like the 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 I'm the very well. I mean, you know, I think you you and I are both in the kind of like 70s, 80s, 90s childhood era mm -hmm. where vampires were the dominant story in a yes. lot of ways. And and I, this cultural shift that's happened of the zombies becoming the most interesting story, and. The way I've always seen this generationally is that part of it is not only just kind of a like a, a, the fear of the fear of the masses, but also it's a, it. Am I right in saying that a lot of the vampire zombie vampire the zombie <laughs> idea is the fear of conformity? It's that. Yes. I don't want to be one more drone who works at a cubicle for a huge corporation and lives an Ikea life. And I want to go be my own person. I don't want to be my parents. And and so the zombies are all of the office drones, all of the people who just get up and go to work and live their life. And, and that's it. And that the the. The reje it's the rejection of that kind of like middle class capitalist idea that, mm -hmm. that is behind a lot of zomb a, lo a lot of the younger generations focus on zombieism. That a lot of it is kind of the not the balkanization. I'm trying to find the right word, but the kind of like the, the cubicalization. I think perhaps of of it's life. It's a nice it's word. Just the like the the getting to that point. Is that a fair statement in terms of where it is that sort of millennials and even more Gen Z have become so interested in zombies? Yeah, and I, I will put it this way: um, <laughs> somewhere out there, and I'm pretty sure it's in one of the boxes that I just moved. Um, there's a picture of me in college with a bunch of my radio station college friends, um, and we uh -huh. were like the very different people on campus, and we were unique, and we were not like we were not zombies. And there's this wonderful picture of us, and we all have the exact same fucking leather jacket on. Sorry, the exact yeah. same leather jacket on because we are unique, man. Yeah. Um, and I think that's exactly how Gen Z sees us Gen Xers. You were you were struggling so much to be unique and different, and yet you ended up all the same. Yeah. Um, and so they see us as, um, you know, a new kind of zombies. Maybe we're the fast zombies, but we're we're still zombies to them. Yeah. I I mean, you and I were talking before we we got on this podcast about how we both have this long history of countercultural things, and we both have a lot of tattoos, and we're both so interested in all this like breaking away from stuff. And our conversation this morning was about our houses and mortgages and paying, you know, <laughs> and plumbers. How much plumbers cost, man? <laughs> like I I. I've been. I was on a, a a weekend retreat with a bunch of my friends, where we went and like rented a cabin in the North Woods, surrounded by snow, so we could play board games and cook communal meals all weekend. <laughs> and like, this is a fun countercultural kind of a thing, and yet 
on two different occasions, I got really into this conversation about the different contractors my friends had had to redo their basements. And I was like, am I the zombie? I think I've, I've become the zombie now. You have. That might be, mm-hmm. that might be the standard arc of a life in, in America, uh, in our era. You, know, you start yeah. out wanting to be a vampire and you end up becoming a zombie. Well, so is that – there's an interesting kind of – I'm going to back up a second. This is a tangent, but I promise it's relevant. Mm-hmm. My mother was a huge Star Trek fan, and she loved to compare the Star Trek of the 1960s, the original show that she grew up on, and The Next Generation. And she always said that, that she she wanted me to watch the original series because she wanted me to understand the fundamental hopeful nature of the 1960s and that there was this real sense of hope and that we would, through science uh, and progress, like you said, progress, overcome all the problems of hunger and ignorance and religious dogma and all these kind of things and we'd live in this enlightened world. And then eventually comes TNG where we start to problematize those things and then we get into Voyager and Deep Space Nine where there's corruption and there's all these problems within it. And she loved those stories, but for her, a fundamental part of it was that the the 90s were a much more cynical time than the late 60s were in a lot of ways. And Thanks, Reagan. Well, yeah, exactly. And as well as thanks watching all the baby boomers who then – bought property and cared more about their property values than uh, the mm-hmm. other things. I, I have an aside about that that I'll tell some other point. But and, and again, you and I are hoping dearly we won't become that, but it's a thing. And so I wonder, is there is is the story of young people caring about vampires becoming young people caring about zombies about, you know, another move towards cynicism and another move away from hope and that like... Gen X, we had the sense of, yeah, we could become vampires. We could become better. We could become the ones who have the secrets. We could become the ones with all the knowledge and who are pulling the levers behind everything. And of course, we always told ourselves we'd pull it for better ways. You know, Vampire the Masquerade is fundamentally about you're a young vampire who wants to supplant the older vampires so that you can then run things in a better way. But that by the time that zombies become the dominant mythos, it's now it's no longer about can you become the elite like everyone else? It's now just can you survive this mass of, you know, corporatized, uh, cubicleized society? Can you just survive and not become that rather than this hope of becoming elite? Does that am I just word salading here? Does this make any sense? No, it makes it makes a lot of sense. Um Two things. First off, pretty soon we have to start talking about blood. Mm-hmm. Um, because zombies and vampires and HIV changes everything. Yep. Very but before so. we get before we get to that, on, on your point, God, I'm going to quote um, a very conservative New York Times columnist. Um, um, but um, there's this notion of that. There was a wonderful book that came out in the 1990s called Bobos in Paradise. And mm-hmm. um, the definition of a bobo, because we define generations, were um, um, bourgeois, bourgeois bohemian, I think. Bohemians, right? Yeah. 
went. I, somebody would never never spend ten grand on a, um, a an in ground pool, but they would definitely spend ten grand on a new kitchen. Um, is a bourgeois bohemian, um, right. and the the author of that book, who's a New York Times columnist, um, um, wrote this wonderful piece just about a year ago in the Atlantic called "How the Bobos Broke America." And the notion was these bobos were going to make, you know, everything much more meritocritous. That's a mispronunciation. Um, And it was going to be possible for people from all sorts of backgrounds to go to Harvard. And and what happened when they got to be our age is they did exactly what the boomers did before them. And they made sure that their kids were going to be successful and nobody else's kids could get in the way of that. Um, And in doing so, they absolutely destroyed the class system in America to make class mobility significantly more difficult, even though they became bobos by being mobile class-wise. So this is actually, I, I can now uh, tell the story that I was going to, uh, and this is from when I was working for Tom Duane, who's a New York state politician. He was the first openly gay politician in New York, uh, I think one of the first in the country. And I was working in his office when he was a state senator, and he represents Chelsea, which for those of you who don't know New York City, it is the area that was uh, very run down, very poor, uh, pretty much abandoned. There was a lot of like old factories and lofts and stuff like that. And so in the 60s, uh, even I think, I think it started even in the 40s and 50s, but especially in the 60s and 70s, gay men all started to flock there because they could buy real estate. It was cheap. They could, they could like, you know, basically if you think of like rent, a lot of it was just squatting at first, but they started to turn it into this very cultural area, you know, with a lot of great shops and restaurants and beautiful lofts. And it is now one of the most expensive neighborhoods in New York City. It is also considered to be one of the most queer friendly and like, you know, they see rainbow flags everywhere. And I think in a lot of ways it is. Our, we, Tom Duane, the Senator represented that district And I remember we started getting phone calls from these older gay men who had, you know, moved there and turned it into a wonderful neighborhood and now owned these very expensive properties. And they were complaining because queer kids, especially trans kids from the rest of the city, were all flocking there because it was the one place they could go without getting beaten up. And the landowners were calling us to complain that these kids were hanging out on their stoops. Because it was hurting their property values and it was hurting their ability to, you know, live in this little (laughs) bobo paradise. And happily, my boss read them the riot act because he was like, you know, the whole point of this neighborhood is that we are safe. How dare you do this? But it has always been to me this perfect example of that. You know, it's a temptation I'm going to have to fight every day as a property owner now as a like, how do you not get sucked in by the system? of capitalism, of, of, I have mine, now I need to protect what's mine, you know? And to remind us that we actually were originally talking about The Last of Us three hours ago, uh, I think in a way there's a great metaphor here for what Joel is. And not that he is property owner in any way, but probably one of the biggest fights I have had throughout my, my life with my father and the fear I always have is my dad was someone who went to law school wanting to be a civil rights attorney. He wanted to go to law school to fix the world. And then he had kids. And in his mind, he felt he had to provide us with a really nice life. And he did. My father was very successful by doing insurance law. And then he kind of, and what he always tell me is your ideals are nice, but you're going to have to sell out your ideals eventually to take care of your family. 
And to, you can see the connection with Joel in terms of that it's for him. It's that Ellie is what matters, not the larger idea of, of helping humanity. And again, I don't think he's wrong. And I'm not – I disagree with my father on a whole host of things. But I've come to understand his perspective a lot more. But it's just – it to me is one more of these ways where you understand that that's the zombie fear. It's that fear of just – Becoming the drone who just looks about what's right around them and does and doesn't feel doesn't look to the larger picture of these things. So, <laughs> yeah. Now that I've gone on my own long individual TED talk, I don't know if there's anything you can yeah, step no, on. Well, or... well, no. I mean, I think I think Chelsea might be the perfect moment um, mm-hmm. to bring it back to the fact that zombie narratives and vampire narratives in the 1970s are different than they are by the 1990s because of HIV. Yeah, let's talk about blood and the little plays. Um, Because both story types are fear of disease, um, Mm -hmm. and they're made much, much more about that over time. Um, I don't think anybody in Night of the Living Dead, the first George Romero zombie movie, um, is all that I don't know, body horror specific about how you become a zombie. Um, but by the time we get to something like World War Z um, or the, yeah, the Walking Dead, um, it's about it's about how you become infected. Um, and there's right. a reason that in Last of Us, they never called them zombies because in no good zombie narrative now do we say the word zombie, right? But yep. They call them infected for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that reason is because culturally, we started to think of infection differently, which is weird yeah. because we started thinking that way and before we had a pandemic. Um, and um, I don't think having the pandemic helped us realize how to think about infection differently, yeah. which might be the problem. One of the first things I read that really was trying to do this comparison of vampires to zombies made a point that I I kind of hate to acknowledge as true, but I think is very true. And I was talking about why Gen Xers especially, especially kind of in the 90s, the 80s and 90s is really when so much of this vampire stuff really took off. And it's that I think, at least for my generation, my part of the generation, you know, I was growing up, I was basically the first... People of my age were the first ones to get their sex ed in not only the time of HIV, but the time of the highest HIV scare mm-hmm. where it was. And so I was lucky enough to be in a place where I was getting very intensive, uh, safer sex education. But it was from a perspective of if a fluid from your body comes into contact with a fluid of someone else's body, you will die. You know, you need to sort of, and because of the weird morality at the time, it was like, oh, yeah, you know, share a soda, any of that kind of stuff. That's It, it, it is sex, especially because of all the, like, anti-sex morality that was there. Um, it, it, there were some ideas of, like, the, the total fear was even to the point of sharing sodas and stuff. But by the time I was getting education, we'd mostly gotten past that. But still, there was so much of that, like, n- sex has to be completely sterile. Which was, a, you know, I get where it was coming from and we needed that education, but that the idea of literally imbibing blood from another person was seen as incredibly erotic because it was incredibly transgressive. 
mm-hmm. because it was this like thing that was now forbidden to us because of the medical situation, the, the, the pandemic. I mean, we called it a pandemic at that time and we should have. And and so, yeah, so I'd never really thought about it until you and I started talking about this or some of the other articles I read. But this idea that like to me, it's like this generation is, oh, we still long for that degree of fluid equals intimacy. And so we romanticize the vampires while we live these very safer sex lives as we should. And then it gets to the point where it's like, no, there's nothing sexy about that. And now any kind of that exchange is just seen as zombies and gross and horrible. If for vampires being infected is cool, for zombies being infected is not. Right. right. Um, and so... I don't know. I've often thought that there was a that that should be part of some sort of like um, public poll. You know, mm-hmm. what's cooler, vampires or zombies, is a statement about what you think about sex, probably at some level, yeah. right? Um, well, because you think of the, with the exception of like Nosferatu in the nineteen twenties, in almost every vampire story. The vampires are seductive. Mm -hmm. And on some level, there's probably the bad boy vampire who wants to be better, but he still wants to be he still wants to be a vampire. And our hero or often our heroine may well become a vampire by the end of the story or somewhat that Whereas the zombies. Yeah, it's there's no. Well, with the exception of what is perhaps my favorite rom-com, Warm Bodies, which is not a traditional zombie story. Um, Have you seen that? No, but I've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is Romeo and Juliet as told in a world of zombies. It's phenomenal. Um, but but yeah, the zombies don't get romanticized. They're not heroized in that same way. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's try this this way. Um, this semester, I'm teaching my normal introduction to American studies, and we're getting close to the point where I go, hey, in 1965, if you got into Berkeley, there was no tuition. Yeah. Right. Um, and here is the here's the way to think about how much you're paying for school right now. The more people of color we let into universities, the more we started charging for them. And you can think of making school expensive as a racist reaction to equality. Mm-hmm. And here, this is quite literally a thank you, Reagan, because it's Reagan is the governor yeah. of California. Who does it? Yes. Yes. They're making trouble up there in Berkeley is exactly how he put it. Um, and I, I think you can get a very coherent graph comparing those two things. So now here's the next graph. But you go between like you and I are Gen X, um, Gen X and millennials and Gen Z. When you do that, I think there's a similar trend that the more expensive middle class school students find college the more they start watching zombies and the less they start paying attention to vampires. Hmm. Interesting. And I'm not quite sure how that precisely works, but I think their fear is a fear of the cost of their education um, because their education might just be turning them into zombies. Yeah. Well, yeah, it is. I mean, it's the, you know, you have to, you can't just be, the person like I, I would love to focus my entire life on, you know, trying to make podcasts and things like that. And if somebody who would or trying to make art or trying to make music. But, yeah, it's the well, we've got the albatross around our neck of the, you know, the, now it's not the family you have to provide for. It's the student loans you have to pay off. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the more expensive we make college, the less likely a new graduate is to like do something radical. Yeah, I mean it's, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get into the one other thing that I think has been a big shift, and that this show and this game I think is not—it's not the pinnacle of, but it certainly is a very far point in—and that's vampires have almost always been to some extent supernatural, and they're often tied up with supernatural and and zombies originally very much were and zombies often come out of well there's always actually been kind of two two schools of zombies one of which is the dr frankenstein or as mel brooks would remind us frankenstein um idea of the zombie that's the the site the mad scientist but also the idea of voodoo and and some of the ideas we have you know the dead will rise again and um so it's mary shelley or it's hate or it's haiti yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think we can. Uh, there, there are a lot of stereotypes that go into the the Voodoo as, as zombie and things like that. There's a lot of also when it comes to America and, and all kind of things like that. But still, like my understanding is that a lot of those earlier movies, there is a supernatural aspect of you know like poltergeist. Well, poltergeist is, is ghosts, not zombies, but it's you know it's the dead coming back to life because of something mystical or something like that. Here, I think Resident Evil definitely was a step in that direction, but here certainly there is nothing mystical about this whatsoever. This is purely just ev- this is progress. This is evolution on behalf of one of the most prodigious life forms on Earth, fungus. What do you think of as the significance of that kind of shift from <laughs> zombies as something mystical and vampires as something mystical to this is a purely scientific part of nature thing that's now a threat to humanity? Well, we've we've gone from um, having them be fantasy to having them be science fiction. Mm-hmm. That's what you're really saying. Yeah. Um, and um, I have to I have to be blunt. I really dislike fantasy because of its fantasy. I, I'm mm-hmm. a science fiction geek, um, right? Because of the pseudoscience that makes it seem justifiable in my little head, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think getting rid of the mysticism and the fantasy elements is usually a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think that's the case here. I, I, um, I think that I appreciate my science fiction when it tends towards the utopian, not the dystopian. Mm-hmm. Um, and when science fiction becomes predominantly dystopian, I worry for the next generation. And I think, in many and, and this ways, is my mother's point about the the hopeful that like Star Trek was certainly not the only hopeful, you know, sci-fi of the '60s and '70s, and today it is a, a lot dystopian. I don't know. I, I think if you were to ask some of my you know twenty twenty one year old students to define science fiction, they wouldn't define science fiction. They'd define dystopia for you. Mm, interesting. That, they, they don't necessarily see the future as a place where things are going to get better anymore. They see the future right. as the place where they're going to be really pissed at us for destroying the planet that they're now dying on. Right. And that's all they see. So in terms of The Last of Us, then, specifically, do you are you saying that you wish there was a mystical component to it or that you like that it is so very much, this is not mystical in any way, this is a natural scientific development? I wish that the... Genre conventions hadn't changed, mm. but they have. Um, and I really like the way Last of Us did it, both yeah. in the game and then in the, the show, which adds a little bit more pseudoscientific justification, right? Um, right. 
it has that that um um god what was the name of the uh talk show host that they're totally referencing in the very first episode it had that like late 1960s kind of dick cavett dick cavett show mm-hmm. feel um and um you know an actor who's well known enough that you wouldn't expect him to be in this role explaining right. exactly how the world is going to end for you right from the very beginning was a beautiful little piece of science fiction um and um it's that it is not there in the game um and there's a couple of things that the show does much better than the game that's one of them yeah. the other one is going to indonesia for a bit um for yeah. making it not exclusively an american story um yeah but but i really like the way last of us has Usually when, when a fantasy narrative becomes a science fiction narrative, it gets very, very specific. Um, here, it very much still holds on to the metaphor that they're trying to communicate, which right. is not, which is, which is about, to use really old fashioned terms, about man's hubris, right? Yeah. It's about humanity's desire uh, to control things leading to its downfall. Uh, it, you know, fly too close to the fungal sun, man. I mean, one thing I think is really fascinating about it is, yes, it is through human evolution. I just, let me back up about this. I mean, one thing I think that's really fascinating about it is you could look at this as this is the continual progress, as that, you know, this is just another life form emerging that might now be a threat to humanity on the planet. Except, and they, they only drop these things very briefly, but if you pay attention, they're really there. There are two fundamental things that humanity does that cause this to happen. One is the warming of the planet, and that that's what causes the fungus to evolve. And the second, as I said, is the global distribution networks, because, you know, it would seem entirely possible that you could have this isolated outbreak in Indonesia or wherever it is that the first you know factories happen. And there's a horrible tragedy, but it's contained to some extent. It's the mm-hmm. fact that that flower then flies all over the world that any hope is lost. And, and yeah, so I think that alone also raises these great these great questions of, you know, is this just natural evolution? And therefore, should humanity continue to fight for its place as the dominant species on the planet, or should it not? But also is this to kind of shift into another of my favorite uh, science fiction's Battlestar Galactica, is this humanity's children coming home? You know, is this entire thing the creation of the direction of human progress. And you can't see my quote quotation marks uh, on radio, but hopefully you can hear them in my voice. Well, let's, let's remember that the very first episode does something really great with this. Um, mm-hmm. So we get the, the Dick Cavett um, like setup of maybe the planet will get warmer and then, you know, there will be a reason to evolve. Um, but we need to remember how completely random evolution is, how non-progressive evolution is. And the right. thing that the very first episode does is show you how incredibly lucky Joel is that he didn't get infected on outbreak day. He gets up in the morning and they're going to have pancakes, but they don't have pancake mix. His daughter's going to make cookies, but they're not the kind of cookies she's going to eat. He's supposed right. to bring they're home a cake. Yeah, Saved the- by raisins. They're supposed to bring home a cake. He doesn't bring home a cake because he's too busy. There's all of these, like, I should have had flour in my diet today at this at the day in which everybody who's having flour is turning into a zombie, and I didn't. And it's random chance and luck. 
And that's what evolution is. Evolution is not progress. It is random chance and luck. Um, And I think that that is a beautiful way to do it. You get that even with Ellie and her creation story in that Uh it's just this incredible, it's hard to even say it's luck because it's the death of her mother, but that it's the idea that her, her mother is infected just at the moment of birth and so, or just after the moment of birth. And so a teeny bit of it goes down the umbilical cord, but not enough. Like, yeah, that's just, it. that's not planned. It's just random. Mm-hmm. And going back to the other side of that, I think for me, and I think this conversation actually helped me really kind of put my finger on this, as much as there's a part of me that misses the mysticism of some of these stories. Because I do like some of that. I think it adds a fun mystery and a fun spookiness. Yeah, but you're a theologian. That's why you like it. Well, that's also true. I will point out that I think if you really hate fantasy, you can't come and talk to me about Star Wars anymore. Because if you want to claim Star Wars is is science fiction, we have some real problems. So I'll I'll tell you how early this dates in my life. I I saw Empire Strike. I saw all of them in the theater. Um, And I guess I was about, I don't know, I would have been 11 when Empire came out. Um, And I was pissed that Luke could make that lightsaber move with his mind because it was not supposed to be magic. It was supposed to be science. I was uh-huh. angry about Empire for a decade. Because Obi-Wan speaking from the grave to say Luke well, did not did, I, 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 I never I did not get it when I was seven, but man, was I pissed yeah. when I was 11, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but that ship has really sailed. I know. It, I, it really has. But my point being that I don't think you can ask the kind of ethical questions that this show does and and really point out the the problem with any of those ethical questions because the thing about mysticism is it takes away agency because if if to some extent there is like a mystical person or a mystical force at work, well, then either if it is just evil with a capital E – then there's no moral questioning. You have to fight evil. You have to do whatever you can to defeat evil. That is the fundamental idea. Or if it is like, if it's, you know, part of some God's plan or some evil witch's plan, whatever it is, it, it just, it, it takes away the idea of it's just us against this horrible pandemic, you know? Mm-hmm. And like, there's a, to me, there's something really powerful about that because because it it, it it takes away any it takes away any of the theologizing of it really. It just is like this is just a reality that we have to deal with in our own way. Because when it is mystical, and this I think is one of the biggest problems with religion, it allows people. Oh God, I didn't. Even, here's another connection you can make. <laughs> when religion comes into play, people people allow themselves to stop making ethical questions because this is God's plan such as with David and his group mm-hmm. oh that's beautiful you know one of my favorite memes that always goes around is um, you know if if the idea of God is the only thing that's keeping you from raping three year olds then you're just not a good person right? yeah right the, um, uh, Penn of Penn and, Te- and Teller is famous for saying that you know when someone said to him Without religion, you can, you know, kill, you can murder people as much as you want. And he says, yes, that's true. I do kill people as much as I want, which is zero. I don't want to kill people. <laughs> Good answer, damn it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, by by getting rid of the mysticism, yes, we do get to have the the discussion, the ongoing discussion about the morality of the situation. And I think that's exactly mm-hmm. it. 
I think that's exactly the point. Yeah, I think so, too. All right. Well, I think this is we could go on for three more hours. Uh, Both of us have spouses and and lives we need to get back to, uh, which unfortunately probably revolved about something of housekeeping Um, (laughs) as we are made zombies by property, (laughs) which I have to say also, I, I just want to acknowledge there's an awful lot of people who are not able in this current economy to own homes, and I'm I I feel like I'm sounding like an idiot and an, kind of an a hole by by complaining all the time about that. That's not my point at all. Um, but but back to this topic, is there any of the last things you wanted to bring up or questions you wanted to raise that we haven't gotten to yet? Well, I think we do have to do a quick bonus section and talk about the second game. Um, yeah, which I, I think that's really important. Um, uh, also, yeah, to reiterate what you just said. Um, this is my first house, and I feel lucky every time I walk through it. So, yeah. Um, yeah. My, my mother and I were homeless for a short time, so this is kind mm-hmm. of amazing to me. Um, and I got to be here in a large part because of my whiteness, and I know that. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's important things to acknowledge. Important um, to acknowledge. Um, that said, the beauty of a zombie narrative is it does not discriminate in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Um, if you, you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you're going to be a zombie. And if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, a zombie is going to kill you. And that is the mass population politics of zombie narratives that that vampires don't have. And that's actually an interesting way of bringing this all full circle in that I wonder if that is one more appeal of a zombie is that, you know, when I was a kid, anti-racism meant don't see color. It meant we should all be the same. And I think in more recent generations, as part of the sort of you know, recognition that a lot of the ways we were taught not to be racist were just more part of white supremacy, you know, a lot of it today is, no, like, you have to see color. You have to recognize. You, you, you need to not see color as a way of judging, like, who's better or worse or, or building laws around. But you should see the distinctiveness of black culture or, you know, or different parts of Latine culture, you know, or, or all these different things. And, and and the zombies are that because the zombies are zombies don't see color. Zombies mm-hmm. are just gray. It's just all human difference is removed. All human ingenuity, all human inventiveness, all the things that make individuals individuals is removed when when you all just become zombies. Exactly. You know, um, this is a horrible aside, but I've been thinking about Monopoly a lot. Um, the the zom- economic concept or the game? The game. Okay. Um, because the, the, the problem with the game um, is it it keeps these stereotypes of American mythology in place that are actually true, which is the most important one. We all start from the same place. Right. Yeah, right? it's really true. Um, and therefore, success is, you know, how you how you play. Um, yeah. And, and secondly, to win, somebody must lose. Yeah, it's zero sum. It has to be zero yeah. sum. Um, and um, I think I think zombies have one of those problems, but not the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's worth that's worth thinking about. There's a reason right. that people younger than us, who I hope one day get to decide if they get to own a home or not, um, people younger than us find zombie narratives to be an interesting way to think about what jerks you and I are at our age because of our middle-agedness. Yeah, that's fair. 
Um, on that cheery, hopeful note that we said, it, uh, we're worried about science fiction. Uh, let's wrap up. Uh, where can people find you? Uh, they can certainly take out quite a lot of money and get an education uh, with you as one of their professors at uh, is it City City University of New York? You're at no, it's at New school. Pace University. You, Pace University. You, you right. always remember it as a better school than the one I'm at. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> You're fine. But it, it, it's Pace University, um, though I've uh, recently given my my notice. So I will be leaving at the oh, end of wow. the semester and finding a place in my new neighborhood to teach at that's closer to home. Um, Do we know what that is? Are you not allowed to say what that is yet? I, I um, have a couple of leads and I have not decided. So Okay. Cool. Well, congratulations but, for that. Yeah. But uh, short but, of a... Uh, Short of that, Probably. I would just go to go to go to like Amazon and put my name in and go oh, look at all those books, yep. um, which start with you know, humanity is a virus matrix um, book and go on to stuff on um, video games design. Now is what I mostly do, so you yeah. can find me both places and MatthewCapel.com, which is awesome. where you will find all sorts of stuff about me. Yeah. Uh, you can also find Matthew Capel by searching for that term on The Ethical Panda, because Matthew has been a frequent guest now on these podcasts, which I'm very lucky and very grateful for. Um, and of course, on TheEthicalPanda.com, you'll find all different ways to find our podcasts. Um, Star Wars Universe podcast has been doing episode by episode coverage of both The Bad Batch and Mandalorian. Uh, I have a lot of thoughts for uh, Disney for releasing both of those shows on the same day and driving me utterly insane. Um, but there you can find all the ways to support this podcast podcast and also all the ways to give us feedback what do you think of this game what do you think of zombies and vampires and all things we discussed would love to hear what you think you can find us on facebook twitter tiktok email all the places i'm even on instagram now i'm trying to be hip i'm not i'm old my hips will break soon but i'm trying to be on instagram i am on tiktok quite a lot would love your feedback on both twitter and tiktok we're having fascinating discussions right now uh especially about anakin and the idea of is anakin who is responsible for Anakin's fall and can Anakin's fall be seen as zero sum or can we see blame as happening in multi-levels? I've done this whole metaphor about a school shooting uh, and how if you say that it is entirely the responsibility of one person like the shooter or Anakin that allows everyone else to kind of dissolve themselves of blame but also you still have to blame him. It, it's a whole thing. Check it all out. Um, but most importantly to, to and our, and of course if you're a patron or if by this point we may have finished the switch over to True Story FM. And so if you're a member or a patron, you can uh, sign up and uh, you, you'll get the bonus content that we're about to give. We'll have spoilers for The Last of Us Part 2. So if you want to hold on for that, that's just fine. But for everybody else, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, please check out all the great things Matthew's doing. Please check out TheEthicalPanda.com. We have spoken. Run!